This morning, um, we do continue our Get Drenched series where we are digging into um, the story of the church of Christ, of the kingdom of God being established in the New Testament. Um, if you are keeping track, you are pretty much all the way through the, the gospel of Matthew. And now um, you should be beginning in your reading the very first gospel, first gospel meaning chrono- chronologically the first one written, and that is the gospel of Mark. And um, again, if you haven't signed up to be a part of this, I cannot encourage you strongly enough. You may, um, you know, just uh, think to yourself, oh, um, you know, I'd like to do a Bible study, but, uh, you know, I don't have the time. Literally, we're talking about 10 minutes for you to engage deeply into God's Word. Even if you skim the passage and spend some time with the questions, you're going to do some learning and some growing. And as a pastor, I do want to remind you, one of the best ways, if not the best way for us to grow in understanding who God is, who Christ is, is by engaging with his love story for us, the scriptures. So if you haven't signed up for that, and if you're not engaged, there are booklets available, books available. There is an email that goes out daily, and I want to encourage you to that. Again, we're here in Mark, and Mark is, um, like I said, the first gospel. It's also an interesting gospel because Mark has um, more than most gospels a really poor view of the disciples. Uh, And what I mean by that, it is the most disparaging of the gospels in terms of who the disciples are. And really, in essence, if you read the gospel, um, you're going to see how many times Mark makes it clear that they don't get it. They just, they've missed it somewhere, somehow. Christ gave a teaching, and they have to ask him what the parable means. Christ did this thing, and they argue about something that is completely peripheral to the conversation that uh, the important stuff that Jesus was trying to share with them. And so this morning we see a little bit more of that picture of Mark's view of the disciples uh, because we see their story when it comes to the miraculous uh, feeding of the thousands. And um, you will see a little bit how um, Mark shows us who the disciples are a little bit. Before we dig into God's word, let's pray together and ask for God to dwell in us and through us and show his power through his word. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for this gospel, which uh, teaches us um, who you are again and gives us some clarity of understanding. It also reminds us that we are not the first people to miss it, that we are not the first people to not completely understand your ministry and what you are doing. And that, like the disciples, that we make mistakes too in how we engage in your kingdom. And we pray, Father, that as we read this story of the feeding of the thousands, as we hear, Lord, again, the message of of what it is that you do through us, your work of compassion to the world around us, that, Lord, that might move our eyes to see the world as you see it. That might move us to see the people around us, even those who suck the energy so often out of our lives, who, who make it difficult to love 
that you give us, Lord, that wisdom and that discernment and those eyes to see how you see them so that we might see them likewise. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, it's hard for me when I preach not to tell stories about youth ministry, and I know, I know I've, I've shared many of them over the years, but I'm going to share another one again because there was so much in, there's so much in ministry. I can, here's what I guarantee you, if I ever move to another church, I will tell stories about you because you've also given me many stories to share, but I won't share those stories with you because then I'm naming names and that's a problem. So I want to share a story about uh, many, many years ago when I was um, involved in a trip to Mexico with um, a group of high school students. And it was a great week. And really, the whole purpose, it wasn't a work trip. We didn't go to build anything. Um, We weren't, like, uh, repairing stuff. We simply went as missionaries to... um, to Mexico. We worked with a local church. We were at a campsite that was in the hills south of Tijuana, and we were in a campsite, and we would spend time every day doing some training with about 150, 200 other kids from other churches, and we would talk about what we were going to do that day and what the message was, and we have craft ministry for kids and women's ministry and and different stuff that we had to learn and prepare for for the, the night of ministry ahead. We had lunch, and then we headed to the ministry site, all to different ministry sites. I think there were about maybe 20 to 25 churches served. The church that we served, it had been an incredible week. By this time, I think this was Saturday morning. We had been at the church uh, every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. On Friday evening, we'd had a wonderful gathering. It was sort of like the come to Jesus service that so often you have on trips like this. And I had preached a message um, of salvation, and there had been people who had come forward in prayer. And we had a band at that time of youth group kids who just absolutely rocked it and did a great job, and they were actually leading worship in Spanish, even though these were all English-only speakers, and, and God did this incredible work, and it was just, it was an amazing, amazing week. And then, as you have to do when you finish these weeks, you got to go and check out. We were a part of a group. We had to check out of the group and then um, head, back, uh, head back home to California. So um, I go in to check out in this little office with the guy who's in charge. He's actually the second guy in charge, so he's, he's one down on the totem pole. Um, but I, I went in there and I said, hey, thanks. It was a great week. He's, uh, he, he had a CD of pictures that they had taken for the week that we could take back to the church, our church and share with people. And he said, uh, or I said, um, looking forward to seeing you next year. And he said, not unless some things change, you won't. I'm like, what? He said, you guys messed this week up for everybody. You're not coming back next year unless there are some changes that happen. To say that I was absolutely blindsided would be the biggest understatement in the world. Now, I will say this, and, and I, I know this is hard for you to believe. Sometimes when I lead groups, things get a little raucous. Things get a little 
crazy sometimes, and especially when I was using, uh, when I was leading youth ministry, I had even less controls than I have now, which is pretty crazy. Uh, we, we did some crazy things over the course of the week, but we did them for the purpose of honoring God and, and leading worship at this church, and, and we'd, we'd done some stuff at the beach. I knew you weren't allowed to go to the beach, but God had led us there, and we did this great ministry at the beach, and, and, um, some of our kids in the camp had been sort of energetic and a little crazy sometimes, but it had all been in good fun. And I knew these kids and I knew their heart and truly their heart was to worship Jesus Christ. But for this guy, this ministry, this context, this time, this place, it's not how he saw it. What he saw it was as my failing. Now remember, end of a big week, wonderful week, great experience. I'm ready to go home. The only thing I'm thinking of is I'm thinking that, like literally, in Carlsbad, there's an In-N-Out burger, and if we leave now, we can get there for lunch. That's what I'm thinking. And I had to sit there for the next hour while this guy railed on me, and then he called in the first in command, and I got railed on. Now, I will admit this. Some of it I deserved. But about 75% of it, I didn't. I was coming off this great week of ministry. And now all of a sudden, you're dragged down into stuff that you're not ready for. And you just want to go home and rest. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go home. I wanted to have a double-double animal style. I wanted to go home, be with my wife, be with my kids, and just rest. But now there was no space for that. In our story this morning, the disciples are in exactly that sort of space. They've come off wonderful times of ministry. They've had experiences of mountaintop stuff. And now they're coming together, back together with Jesus. And Jesus is saying, okay, let's, let's spend some time, in a sense, even processing. We're going to go to a quiet place. But all of a sudden, they're confronted with some stuff that they can't ignore. They're exhausted, but they have to deal with it. Let's read together. Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 30. It says there, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him, All they had done and taught. Okay, what are they talking about there? You can't go to the previous passage because the previous passage in Mark chapter 6 beginning at verse 14 is a tangent about the the ministry and the death of John the Baptist at the hand of Herod. But if you jump just before that, you're going to read these words. You will say this. It says this in verse 7. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two, gave them Authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except the staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And we read these words. It says, they went out, they preached that people should repent. And then they drove out many demons... They anointed many sick people with oil, and they healed them. 
So the disciples are coming off this huge week, and they hadn't been with Jesus, so this is stuff that they've experienced, and when you've experienced it, and someone has empowered you to do it, you want to tell the story. So that's where we are here at the beginning of the the section that starts with verse 30. So the apostles gathered around Jesus, reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So after this big week, Jesus recognizes, he's heard some of their stories, and he knows that if they get some rest, he's probably going to hear more, and they're going to get an opportunity to be equipped for what's next. Now, again, the disciples hadn't experienced this sort of power. Yes, they'd been a part of things, sort of, sort of piecemeal. They'd been on Christ's coattails with his ministry. But now, because of the authority that Christ had given to them, they had a foretaste of what would happen later on in the book of Acts. But they didn't know that was going to come. But in this story, they're experiencing that for the first time. Could you imagine... Could you imagine if, if Christ had given you the authority to heal and you'd gone out and you had anointed with oil and someone was healed? How would that make you feel? You'd be pretty jazzed, I would think. Being like, wow, this God who gave me his power is real. And you're, you're sort of on that high, this experience of, of joy and life. This guy that I've been committing my life to, following, listening to, is real. His power is real. And he's given that power to me. Like, woohoo, yeah. But you can only sustain that for so long, right? After a while, you're going to have what we call the crash. You're going to come down from the mountain. And in our passage, the apostles, the disciples are down from the mountain. And they were weary and hungry. And they needed and they wanted rest. But, of course, the crowd had other plans. Continue reading 32 through 34. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them, having recognized them, And ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Now, despite the apostles' tiredness... They still wanted more of Jesus. And so, for those of you who don't know, really, in essence, the Sea of Galilee, where we're talking about, is not really that huge. So there's no time that the boat where the disciples and Jesus were could be out of sight of land. They, they, literally, you can see from one side of the, the, the lake to the other. And so if people said, I want to be there when that boat boat lands, it would be easy. You could simply run down the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And this place called the Solitary Place, they actually historically and archaeologically believe that they have that spot. It's just outside of Capernaum, just east of Capernaum by about maybe two miles. It's a little hilltop that is now has the name, historical name called Aremos Tapos or Solitary Place place, quiet place. 
So it would be easy for these people to think, okay, we're going to follow him. And when he gets there, then we're going to be able to hear more. And as soon as they pull up to the coast, to the beach, Jesus looks around and he sees this hunger on the eyes of all these people. And he has compassion on them because he knows that they are, they're hungry for truth. They've heard all this other stuff. They've heard good teaching about the Old Testament. They've heard stories about how to obey God's law. They know the teachings of, of the prophets. But they're looking for salvation. And Christ has it to offer. And because of his compassion, he's willing to take the time. Now, you may say, okay, well, you know, that's Jesus, but... Let me ask you this question. What was Jesus doing while the apostles were out doing their work of teaching? What was he doing during that time? If you want to look back, you can look at that passage in chapter 6, the beginning of verse 6, verses 1 through 13. Do you see anywhere what Jesus was doing? And the answer, friends, is no, you don't, because it's not there. What would we think that Jesus would be doing? Well, look at the beginning of verse 30. It says, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going. What does that mean? It means this. That while the apostles were out doing all these miraculous new works that they had never been a part of, Jesus had been doing the exact same that he had been doing his whole time of ministry. He had been teaching. He had been healing. He had been caring for the, the, those who were without a shepherd. The apostles may have been exhausted because they had been doing hard work. Jesus had been doing even more with larger crowds with no one else around him. He was exhausted too. In fact, you can imagine that this solitary place, Aremos Tapos, was not simply for the apostles it was also for Christ. Christ was seeking a space to regain some of his energy from being on the, the mountaintop of ministry. But now I now to recharge my batteries. But he approaches it differently than the disciples do. Now, we know how that works, don't we? How many of you are stay-at-home parents? Anyone here a stay-at-home parent? A couple of you? How many of you are teachers? Just keep your hands up as I go through people. How many of you are teachers? How many of you are in the medical field? And I mean medical field, you're in medicine in a hospital or a doctor's office and regularly seeing patients. All right, how many of you are in ministry? I'm going to keep my hand up. How many of you, um, let me just ask this question, come home at the end of the day tired? All right. Thank you. You can put your hands up. All you folks that name, I know your story because somehow or other I've been a part of, of someone, either myself or someone else, who's lived into the life that you live into. And I know when you get exhausted at the end of the day, you're wiped out. It's one of the reasons why I never call people at dinner time or in the early evening to ask them to help me with something. Because people are tired. Or imagine this moment, all right? You come in the door, your child, lovely, 
beautiful, angelic child says, Mom, Dad, I have a project tomorrow that I forgot about. I need to go pick up all the stuff for it. How do you feel in that moment? You're like, kid, I love you, and I know murder is a sin, but... We come, we're in that place so often. We are tired sometimes. We are exhausted. I can tell you, I can tell you that there are moments when, frankly, if you text message me, if you call me, if you try to get a hold of me, I very, may very well ignore you. And not because I don't love you. I just got nothing to give. We have that. But in those moments, those are often the moments. I mean, imagine if you did that to your kid every day. Mom, Dad, I need something. I'm too tired. Forget it. Imagine if you did that every time, that you were tired and your kid asked for something. How would your relationship would be with your kid? How would that relationship be with your, your spouse, with your friends? with your coworkers, with whoever it is that we're talking about here, if that was consistently your response every time you were tired and someone came to you for something, to ask for some emotional investment, spiritual investment, life investment, if you said no, you and I would probably be end, end up to be very lonely people and there would be a lot more pain in our lives. So then the question is, how do we engage even when we are tired? Because that's exactly where the disciples are. It's exactly where Jesus is. How do we engage in the ministry around us even when we're tired? Let's continue reading, verse 35. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said. It is already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages. Buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Now, I ask this question, do you think in those verses that the disciples are being honest about what they want? What they're saying is this. They're saying, they're saying, send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. You think that's what they really want? I don't think that's what they want. They just want to end it here. Lord, send the people away. Send them away. We, we don't care. We don't care about whether or not they get food or not. We don't care about what happens. We're exhausted. We're wiped out. We can see that you are too. We need to give ourselves some recharge, alone time. We need that time. So let the people worry about themselves. Get them out of here. And then maybe tomorrow, if we get a good night's sleep, then maybe we can continue to love them and minister to them and care for them. See, I think what the disciples really want is they want that rest and recharge time. But you see that Jesus is having none of it, right? 
Jesus does some interesting things. First of all, he gives them this imperative. What does it say? Verse 37 at the beginning, it says, but you give them something to eat. Go ahead and do it. Come on, disciples. You take care of it. I don't think that that's an imperative of Jesus that he's saying the disciples to do something so that it gets done. I think what he's saying to them is, if you try to do this on your own, I want to watch and see what happens. You give them something to eat. You care for them. You show compassion. You spend time on your own energy, at your dinner table, at your coffee shop, in your life, with your kids, on your own energy, fuel from your own tank, and let's see how it goes. He's really saying that in a much larger way to all of us. Try to do it on your own so we can watch and see what happens. This is a teaching moment for Jesus and the disciples. And of course, they know right away, right? Of course they know. Their response betrays that. They say to him, that would take more than a half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? They get it. We can't do it on our own. We can't take care of it. But Christ's reply next is so beautiful, and I want you to listen, because there's so much beauty here. Let's continue to read verse 38 through 44. How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. And they found out they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks. He broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate, and they were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. A couple really interesting things going on here. First of all, it begins with this, okay? We hear Jesus ask the question, what is it? It's in verse 38. Can somebody read the question that he starts with? Read it out loud. How many loaves do what pronoun? You have. So Christ is saying to the disciples, what do you got? What do you have? What's on your table that you can bring to the story? You don't have much. Five loaves, two fish. How many people is that feeding? All right. I, I think that's, that's probably not going to take care of any of the rows here in the church. I, I see Landon, Landon Kern back there can do five loaves and two fish on his own in a second. I've seen him. It's pretty amazing to watch. I don't think he even breathes. We know that's not enough. But Christ is saying, what do you got? What do you got? I speak Spanish fluently. I have relationships in different parts of the world. I know the law really well. And I understand what it is. I can play drums like a madman. 
I fix cars. I do it well. I'm a compassionate nurse. And I love the people that I care for. I can preach. It ain't much, but I can preach. And then Christ says this to them. He says, go and see. Then he says, we have five loaves and two. Then he directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And then taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. How did Jesus get the five loaves and two fish? How did he get them? How did he get them? The disciples brought the five loaves and the two fish to him. That's the only way that Christ could have gotten them. To bring your ability to speak Spanish before the Lord and say, Lord, all I got is yours. To bring my engineering ability before the Lord, it's all I got, it's yours. To bring your ability to be a great loving parent, for you to bring your ability to be a person who sees needs and helps with them, for you to be a person who keeps track of account balances in great ways, clearly and in in ways that are are, are ethical and, and appropriate. You bring that to the table and you say, Lord, here it is. And the Lord looks up to heaven and he says, bless this thing. But the step has to be taken, friends. You and I got to bring it. Got to give it. Got to offer it. And we know what the greatest commandment is. What's the greatest commandment? It says, love the Lord your God with what? All. So what do we bring to the Lord to have him bless? All of it. If you got it, you bring it. If you've got finances, you bring them. If you've got gifts and talents and abilities, you bring them. You got artistic stuff going on, you bring it. You got the ability to do, uh, to help other people with whatever it is, bring it. And allow Christ to look to heaven and say, this thing that is not nearly enough, It's not nearly enough for what is needed. It's not, quantifiably, it's not going to cover anything. But I'll bless it. And I'll multiply it. And how much more will come. But it starts with us being willing to say, I will love the Lord my God with all. That's where it starts. And so often, I think we hold back. I know I do. One final thing, because I love this. It's it's so unnecessary in many ways to the story, but it's so beautiful. Why is verse 43 there? What does verse 43 say? And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. It didn't need to say that. All that it needed to say was this. They all ate and were satisfied. And we already would have been impressed. We would have said 5,000 men. 
Who knows how many more women? Because women always go to those things more than men anyway. So there's like double or triple the amount of women. Plus kids. Imagine how many people were fed. And yet 12 basketfuls of stuff were picked up as extras. Why is that there? I'm going to give you a verse of scripture that you need to memorize. And if you don't have it memorized, put it in your head now. It's Psalm 23 verse 5. It says, the Lord prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemy. He anoints my head with oil and my cup overflows. Friends, this is the overflow. This is the overflow. This is God's promise being true. He said, I will take care of you. I will bless you even more. It, all it had to be was half a basket, and it would have been more. All it had to be was a basket, or, but it was 12. Jesus is saying here, my blessing to you, my provision for you, my capacity to take what you bring, five loaves, two fish, not nearly enough, yet do with it what only I and my Father and the Spirit can do through you and in you. Bring it to me. Give it to me. Love me with it. Because I can do so much more than you can think of or imagine. Um, I'm, not, I, I'm, not, I'm not much of an athlete anymore. Once, I would have professed myself to be one. I'm not much anymore. My knees have gone out pretty much. They're gone. Um, but I had, at one point in my life, some ideas, and I, I ran a 10K. I know Jill just ran a 5K. Congratulations. Good job. Uh, some of you have run... How many have any, ever ran a marathon? Russ, yeah. You've, uh, you guys have done a couple each. Mike Winslow, is no, I know, has done some as well. There's some other people. How many of you have done an Ironman? Is there anyone in the room who's done an Ironman? All right. Here's what an Ironman is. One day, it starts at 6 o'clock in the morning. The biggest one is in Kona, Hawaii. 2.4 mile swim. Just so you know, generally folks swim at their fastest at about three quarters of a mile, just right around three quarters of a mile or a mile an hour. So that's at least, that's about three hours in the water. For me, that's like 16 hours in the water because I dog paddle. 112 mile bicycle run. The best cyclists in the world in order to sustain themselves are biking between 25 and 30 miles an hour. That means four and a half to five hours on a bike. It's in Kona, Hawaii. It's all volcano fields. It's hot like you can't believe hot is. 125 degrees sometimes as they're biking. Their tires actually sometimes don't pop. They melt. Okay? So you're Let's say you're four hours in the ocean, and then you're another four hours in the bike, and then you have to run a marathon. Did the marathon take some energy out of you, Russ? Just a little bit. That's another, the best runners in the world are doing that in about two and a half, maybe three hours. I'm not doing it in less than five. And that's if I were to train like crazy. So you're talking about somewhere between 12 and 13 hours in order to complete this. And you hear that, I hear that and think, there's no way ever on God's green earth that I'm doing that. My older brother did one once. He literally crossed the finish line after doing it and said, I'm glad I'm never doing that again. 
People can do that. In fact, you know how the, old, the oldest man to do this ever was? Don't Google it. How old are you, John? How old are you, John? 89. He was four years shy of John. 85-year-old man. I'm not going to ask how old you are, Marcia. I'll get myself in trouble. But I will say this. 82-year-old woman. That far. Now, if you ever watch the Iron Man broadcast, it comes on about once a year, and it's on sports networks, you can watch. What you will hear over and over again is this when they interview the people. They will say this. I was at the end. I was at the end of everything that I had. I had nothing left in the tank. I was exhausted. I was going to fall over, curl up on the side of the road, and if I died there, I would be okay with it. And then suddenly a person going past me said something like, keep going, you got this. And I pushed for another half mile. And then someone else came and said, you're doing great, keep going. And I could push for another two. And if you've ever seen the end of the Kona Hawaii Ironman, the end starts about three quarters of a mile before the finish line. There's people lining it, clapping, family saying, keep going, keep going, you got this, you can do it, you can finish. You can complete this huge thing that you started. And they will say, that's the only thing that got me through. I collapsed after the end. I was done. Friends, when we live into a life of compassion, it is way harder than that. It is way more taxing and draining than that. When we truly love the Lord our God with all that we have, this is just a little lap around the track. But Christ is there every step of the way saying, you got this. I got you. You think you're, you, you can't go any further? You think you can't put your foot in front of the other? You think that that person who comes to you and, and drains some of that energy again and asks you for something when you're tired, you think you can't do it anymore? Christ says, you got this. You can do all things through me. I, I have given you authority. I've given you a power. I have not given you a spirit of timidity, but of power. I've given you a sound mind for the most part. I've given you love. I've given you compassion. I've given you hope. Friends, maybe you're there. Maybe you're on mile 70 of the bike ride and you're ready to call it quits. Maybe you just got in the water and you're exhausted. Maybe you're 10 steps from the finish line and you don't know that you can go another step. Hear this. Christ says to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never, ever let you go. Keep going. Don't do it in your strength because what you offer is five loaves and two of fish and it's not enough. But when it comes to me and I multiply it the way I do it because I love you and love the people that you care for, it'll be enough. Let's pray. Thank you, Father for taking what it is that we bring, the meager offering, 
the not nearly enough stuff that we have. And you take it, Lord, and you bless it, you give thanks for it, and you multiply it in ways that we can't imagine. And even, Lord, when we're tired, when we're drained, when we want our space, Lord, if we can have the same eyes that you have, eyes of compassion to see people who are sheep with light, without a shepherd who need someone to lead, someone to love, someone to care for, someone to bring hope. Lord, even when we're tired, you can take the meager bit that we bring and make it so much greater. I pray, Lord, that you empower us to that end. I pray for those folks who come here this morning at the end of their rope. They're exhausted. They're tired. They just want something to be different or change or end. Lord, we pray that you speak to their hearts and their minds and you say, keep going. You got this. I am with you always, even to the very end of the age, the end of all things. Lord, you speak to our hearts that we can hear that in the depths of ourselves and know your love is greater than our weariness. Your strength is much more than our weakness. That your wholeness is more than our brokenness. And we can trust what it is that we bring to you. We pray these things all in the name of Jesus. Amen.